today on Ag News Daily. And even then, you know, we're really going to struggle until you get to June or September. Um, stocks numbers. And so stocks numbers are really an indication of whether you're using more or less than what you think you are, or you had more or less than what you thought you did. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy hashtag Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, it is a Market Monday, but what's going on in your world? Not too much going on in my world. However, I am going to the really first major, at least Texas, major stock show today with my little sister. She is going to be showing her pig tomorrow morning. So I'm very excited to go to that. I say it's a major, um, not really a major. A lot of our shows have gotten shut down. So it's the alternative, the, you know, show behind, you know, what Fort Worth was supposed to be. It can be a little bit confusing, but I'm excited to, you know, get back into the barn. That will be awesome. I'm a little jealous that you're going to have some normalcy return for you. Yeah, it's, I'm, I, I say normalcy, but it just, it doesn't feel the same, but I'm really excited that, you know, Texas youth have this opportunity. I mean, we were just talking on Friday with Hannah Egbert about the Stock So Strong campaign. And I'm just glad that, you know, my sister, along with other 4-H and FFA kids are going to have the ability to show in Fort Worth, although it isn't the official Fort Worth stock show, but some kind of normalcy, I suppose. Absolutely. It's good to have uh, kids be able to do that again. It would really stink if, you know, you were showing livestock. This is your junior or senior year of high school and your last one, and you don't really get to do it. So hopefully kids out there will get to enter the show ring again, because I think it teaches youth a lot about uh, hard work and taking care of an animal and being responsible. So it definitely did for me, at least taught me a lot. It certainly taught me a lot as well, Delaney. We're in the same boat there, but why don't we kick things off with some news today? What are you watching? Absolutely. Well, I know you've been mostly watching this, but this popped up on my newswire and I wanted to be sure I shared it. But um, France, as we continue to watch their bird flu cases, I read that just this morning, as of January, since we're now here February 1st, hard to believe, but uh, in the month of January, we saw more than 2 million ducks and other poultry were slaughtered in France due to their highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak. And so far, their agricultural ministry has said that they've confirmed 418 outbreaks, but some 2 million birds have been culled because of uh, suspected What's the word I'm looking for? Infection? No. Um, what is the word I'm looking for, Ashton? Exposure. There you go. <laughs> it's a Monday. Well, Doiny, I also saw a headline. I didn't open it or anything, but I believe it was China. It was either China or Thailand, um, some, some Asian country. Either way, um, had found H5N8 in wild geese in a tourist spot. So they're a little bit worried about, you know, taking it to, you know, other places in that tourist spot. I didn't read the whole thing or anything like that. But I mean, we're just continuing to see, you know, these things or this, these strains of bird flu kind of run through these foreign countries. But I don't think we've had anything here in the US. So I guess that's good for our domestic poultry farms. It is. It's good for domestic demand as well, because if uh, folks are 
having to cull, I don't really know much about France's poultry industry, but if they're having to cull birds, they're going to have to get that supplies from somewhere and hopefully they turn to the United States or if nothing else, it does create some shift in demand uh, on the global marketplace. Another thing that's going to shift some demand on the global marketplace is India's new announcement of an export import tariff. Um, India, the world's biggest cotton grower, has decided to go ahead and impose a 10, 10% duty on imports of fiber to help out their domestic farmers, according to their finance minister, who mentioned that during her budget speech in Parliament on Monday. The tax comprises a basic customs duty of 5% and an additional 5% levy to finance the development of agricultural infrastructure in the country, according to the budget's document. And what this means overall really is, again, a shift in supply and demand on the global marketplace because there were no duties on cotton imports until now. We also saw their government raise the levy on raw silk and silk yarn. And but but really, I should say the focus or the majority of this attention was put on their cotton imports and production. Each year, I think they import some, you know, 35 million bales a year. So imports are definitely expected to fall after this announcement was made. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it shifts, shifts around the supply and demand scale. Well, Delaney, kind of in the same vein of supply and demand, imports, what have you, the Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte on Monday signed an executive order mandating price ceilings for pork and chicken in the capital region as costlier meat has propelled food inflation to a double-digit level. Pork retail prices in the Philippines, which is the world's seventh biggest pork importer, before local demand fell due to the COVID-19 pandemic, jumped more than 50% in January from 2020 as African swine fever hit hog farm operations. The resulting pork supply crunch has also kept prices of chicken elevated as demand increased despite a domestic oversupply of poultry meat. The upward pressure on pork and chicken prices gained momentum during the Christmas holiday which pushed annual inflation for meat to 10% in December and adding to overall inflation, which hit 3.5%, which is the highest level seen in nearly two years. Pork prices at markets in Metro Manila must now be sold at 270 to 300 pesos, which is equivalent to about uh, $5.62 to $6.24 U.S. money um, per kilogram from more than 400 pesos in some outlets since December, according to the executive order. The price of dressed chicken is now pegged at 160 pesos per kilogram, from as high as 200 pesos per kilogram. To stabilize prices, Agriculture Secretary William Darr said last month that pork imports may be tripled this year to 162,000 tons in the Philippines. We're seeing this demand come up, even though supply is also up, and we're not really sure exactly how this is going to play out. I mean, I, I guess I'm glad that this executive order was put in place so you know people aren't price gouging for these products. I know here in the U.S. we have some price gouging laws, but yeah, just something that I have been keeping my eye out today. 
Well, you know, tying right into that, Ashton, I don't know necessarily what the outlook is yet for the global economy, but the Congressional Budget Office has put out their estimate for U.S. economic outlook, saying that the GDP and the saying, excuse me, the GDP growth will recover rapidly a large portion of that due to the labor force, which is expected to rebound to its pre-pandemic levels here come 2022. So not quite there yet, but by the end of 2021, they're saying things should be back to full swing. And, you know, when the U.S. has a boomy economy or starts to rebound, we do see a lot of other countries follow suit as well. That will be optimistic for agriculture. It'll be optimistic, I would think, long term for people getting back out there and purchasing high quality cuts of protein. Um, And really, you know, if we have our economy back up and running, it should be supportive really for pretty much all markets, all industries, uh, because we'll see people being more willing and able to spend money. Again, this is just a forecast. We don't know for sure that this will follow suit. There's always events just like COVID-19, Black Swan events that come to the market and you have no idea what's going to happen or that it is going to happen. And that can trigger recessions or pullbacks in our GDP. But uh, overall, Things are expected to be pretty much back to normal by next year. A large portion of that being pointed at or thankful to the vaccine rollout. And, you know, I I don't know a ton of people who have gotten it here in Iowa. I occasionally see folks posting about it on social media and elsewhere. But it does seem that assuming uh, drug companies can keep up with the vaccine rollout, We'll get back to some sort of quote-unquote normalcy, I think, sooner rather than later, assuming they're able to keep up with the demand for that vaccine. Well, Delaney, one thing that we have been seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic is consumers seeking out products through e-commerce or local you know, growers and producers. And Congressman Dusty Johnson told reporters Thursday that passage of a measure allowing state-inspected meat to be sold across state lines direct to consumers through e-commerce that could put meat on par with craft beer. Now, Delaney, I don't know if craft beer is super popular in Iowa. I guess, yeah, it's pretty popular, I think. There's quite a few breweries, so I would say yes. Yeah, I mean, here in Texas, I mean, I'm not really a fan of craft beer. Um, I'd rather go with a, a Dos Equis or a Coors Light. But, you know, with breweries that are pretty popular, pretty popular, that was a mouthful for me. In Dallas and Austin, you know, people around here kind of enjoy a craft beer. But going along with that, Johnson was quoted as saying, I think Americans love meat as much as they love beer. It wouldn't be hard to imagine a new suite of products coming to the market if the marketplace was a bit more open for these state inspected processors. Now, I'm not too familiar with the way that e commerce works, especially for meat products. We've talked to a few small processors that do e-commerce with their products. But Johnson concedes it's hard for such a bill to get traction among the thousands that are introduced every year. But he says it could be successfully paired with mandatory price reporting. Again, he was quoted as saying, more importantly, we're not all that far away from the next farm bill. I think there should be a livestock title within that farm bill. And I think something like this would fit well potentially in that. So you know, and inspected meats might be something that we see hit the online markets here soon. 
It certainly could be. But, Ashton, speaking of an online marketplace, our commodity markets are traded online, and they traded pretty heavily today. Ashton, what do you say we get into them here before we chat markets with Angie Setzer? Let's do it, Delaney. Well, after last week's fresh seven-year highs in the corn complex, we did finish higher on the day, but uh, not significantly higher. And soybeans were a little mixed today, but kicking things off here first in the corn market. March today closed up two and a half cents to end at 549 and a half. The May up a penny to close at 548 and a half. In the soybean pits, the March contract down five and a half to close at 1364 and a half. The May down four and three quarters to close at 1362 and a quarter. And in wheat, uh, they're pushed lower today, although surprising because we did get some news today saying that the Russian government is going to consider floating their wheat export tax from June 1st. So we'll see how that affects the markets. Get Angie's thoughts about that here in just a moment. But Chicago March contract down 11 cents today to close at 652. The May down 10 to close at 652 and a half. And in livestock, they were mixed today as the February live cattle contract shed 17 and a half cents to close at 114. 1887. The April down 15 equals at 121.70. In feeder cattle, mostly higher on the day as the March contract added 20 cents equals at 137.92. The April up 32 and a half equals at 141.07. And then lean hogs lower today as the February contract shed 25 cents equals at 69.55. The May down a dollar 15 equals at 75.50. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 Dairy Milk Futures. February up 15 cents today to close at 15.51. The March down 48 to close at 16.16. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Angie Setzer. Well, as promised, I am joined by Angie Setzer at Goddess of Grain on Twitter, otherwise the Vice President of Citizens Elevator. Angie, how are you doing today? I am good. How are you? I am fantastic. And, you know, it's been a little while since we've talked, but markets are doing pretty well. So that always keeps everybody in a better mood, I think. Yeah, they have been chugging along. Everyone is in a fantastic mood unless they sold way too much uh, last summer or fall. And then this is probably the most hated rally of of all time, but even so, looking ahead to next year, there's still some cheerfulness and peps in the step when it comes to, to anticipating what's going to happen. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, we've been talking a lot on the podcast so far about supply and demand shifts that we're kind of seeing globally right now or could potentially see, you know, some weather issues that cause those supply and demand shifts. I was just reading something the other day that suggested we might be having another polar vortex season like we did in 2019, which, of course, was the year we had all the flooding and late planting. Mm -hmm. You combine that with what's going on in South America, a lot of dry weather, you know, rains periodically, but there really could be, again, bullish optimist here, the farmers, the eternal optimist, but there really could be some pretty bullish factors setting themselves up for a weather story this summer. I mean, if we do get those, again, all those pieces to line up, how does that paint the picture for commodity markets moving forward when we're already at some record high levels right now? Yeah, I mean, it would be basically what we ran into and, you know, not from an overall fundamental situation, but from a ending stock situation plus a production problem situation. Yeah, you would be looking at a 2012 type structure when it comes to, you know, carryover in 2011 was extremely 
um, tight and it had looked as though though we were going to see this significant increase in plantings. I think that was the year 2012 was 97 or 99 in March, you know, when it came to intended planting numbers. And, and so we had come off, you know, basically a stretch of historically tight um, ending stock numbers for both corn and soybeans. And we're heading into a production year that looked relatively promising and ran into a pretty major crop problem, um, you know, from a weather standpoint. So obviously there is a, a real risk at hand um, that you could see explosively higher prices as we work our way into the summer. You know, and I think that's really when it comes down to it, what your revenue protection crop insurance is for. We started the, the first date of, of crop insurance pricing discovery today that'll last through the end of the month. And, and when it comes down to it, you know, having that harvest price option at play would really kind of provide an additional level of protection. You know, and I'm not a crop insurance salesperson. I, I used to be and I've slept at a handful of holiday inns, you know, but the reality is now you know, from a farmer standpoint, you've got to market as though it's a normal year and make sure that you're aware of, you know, maybe the bushels that aren't necessarily covered via crop insurance, or maybe some of those bushels that would cover your additional cash or your initial cash outlay, you know, to really provide you with a reasonably solid margin. You don't have to be selling everything at this point in time because of the fact that the, the tight ending stocks combined with the unknowns about the growing season are really going to keep a really nice floor underneath this market. Not to mention your old crop, new crop spreads are incredibly inverted. You know, they're looking at 2013 style inversions there, um, you know, that are, are could unwind. So when it comes to looking ahead to 21, you know, you could see um, some pretty strong sell-off in, in the old crop um, numbers if we were to see China back away, for instance, or see some confirmation of a really strong South American crop and, and you know, it a subsequent uh, oversupply for the short-term pipeline. But because of that concern over what would take place if we were to see a weather issue develop, you're gonna see those new crop prices incredibly supported. And, and that ex risk of an explosively higher move, you know, definitely can be covered via some calls if we get into that growing season standpoint, or like I said, you know, looking at your revenue protection options via crop insurance. Since you mentioned um, where folks should be sitting right now, you know, it seems like there's really two types of farmers. I talk to farmers that are marketing a lot of their crop ahead because we've got really supportive prices. And then I talk to farmers that are the exact opposite and think soybeans are going to $17 and want to hold on to their grain crop to see if that price is actually realized. Uh, right now, where would you be advise, advising that corn growers and sweeping growers sit as far as 2021 production? For 2021, we've been, you know, 20 to 30% tops on corn. And that's the 30% folks are the ones that booked a lot of their inputs last fall or before the move higher, you know, in December and in January timeframe. So they're definitely able to, to be booking some, some really strong margins at those levels. Um, you know, there may be some that are a little bit higher um, sold. They, they may have reasons for it. It, it may be because of, um, you know, the banker and their relationship with, with their bank and, and their overall equity and, and maybe their age. And there's nothing wrong with that because it's all being done at, at levels far better than where we've seen for the last couple couple five or six years here. Um, and so, but overall, I'd say the majority of the folks that I'm talking to, you know, we're, we're around 20% on average. Uh, around the same for soybeans, really slow start to soybeans. I, you know, we did have some folks start new crop, you know, in that 11, 1150 range, but the majority 
of of my customers. You know, we started with a five percent or ten percent sale at around eleven fifty futures, um, and with another one in that eleven eighty five, eleven ninety, um, you know, up towards twelve dollars sort of range. And we're just sitting tight. Uh, we're gonna see where we we head from here. And and like I said, I mean, the downside risk at this point, in my opinion, you know, especially for soybeans, is relatively limited. Um, for new crop soybeans, just simply because we do have to continue to, to incentivize um, acres getting planted. We do have to make sure that we take into consideration the, the weather issues that we could run into. We still have to get that Brazilian and Argentina crop harvested too, just because they look good, you know, until they're out of the field and on the boats, um, you know, there's still a certain level of risk premium at play there. So we've been taking our time overall on, on soybeans. Corn, I feel is a little bit different, you know, but at the same time, I think there's probably 20, 25 cents worth of downside risk. And that's pretty limited. I think we could stick around that 425 beast 21 corn on the low end for a while. And so we're just not, you know, overly aggressive, not saying that we won't be eventually, but especially as we're setting this crop insurance price this month, you know, there isn't really an, a big reason to, to get out and, and, and liquidate, you know, expected production this year. And Angie, a final question here. We talk corn and soybeans. The WISE report is coming up again next week. We saw in January USDA start to shrink some of those expected numbers. Do you anticipate that they're going to do anything with uh, the estimates, production estimates in next week's report? No, I don't think they'll. The, the production number that they released in January is supposed to be the final number from a production standpoint. So supply um, should be set. Now, I said supposed to be because there are other times you know, generally, I think September is the only other time they would really come back in and evaluate that. Typically, once you get through the final production number, the only major changes you'll see, even if there is a an issue, even if they're off on their production number, you will not see that really until we get to, to March stocks. Um, and even then, you know, it, we're really going to struggle until you get to June or September um, stocks numbers. And so stocks numbers are really an indication of whether you're using more or less than what you think you are, or you had more or less than what you thought you did. Um, so production-wise, there won't be any changes. From a demand standpoint, I would not be surprised to see them make maybe a, another adjustment a touch higher um, to soybean demand. Uh, I think exports, you know, have indicated that you know, they could be slightly increased, um, you know, but maybe not. They may just phone that one in. Corn exports, I think the, the million-dollar question is going to be, do they take you know, the, the recent Chinese purchases that have come into play since their January numbers and kind of add them into the, the export expectations. And at this point, I don't see how they couldn't. Um, so I think, you know, the, the potential is real there to see, you know, a, a further reduction in corn carryout simply on the idea that we do see, um, you know, a, a lowered, um, you know, a higher export number um, than what we were expecting, um, you know, but We'll, we'll be waiting to see production-wise South America, um, you know, that'll be the big question. And I think you can see them re reduce the Argentina crop, both corn and beans slightly, um, probably leave the Brazilian crop unchanged, I would imagine, uh, on both accounts, just with the recent rainfall that we've seen there. But we'll be waiting and uh, waiting uh, with bated breath to see what they come up with this month. Oh, absolutely. We usually are, it seems like. Uh, Angie, turning our attention to the wheat complex, we've been watching some fundamental news that Russia is likely going to 
continue moving forward with this wheat export tax, which is supposed to curb spring plantings? I guess a two-part question for you. Are we going to see this built into the market? Have we already seen this price premium built in? And do you think Russia is actually going to follow through with this? Because it seems like in years past, they've floated along news like this and they don't really actually follow through. Yeah, I I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, how they do work their way through this. I think this was really more of a, I don't want to say a bluff, but more of a move to really kind of encourage the farmer to sell the nearby supplies as quickly as possible. Just with the idea, right, that you are going to see this export tax become punitive for new crop sales and beyond June, July. You know, and typically a farmer, if he's he or she has held on to their wheat supplies for, for you know, the entire winter time into um, June, you know, that's about the time that you see some liquidation take place, May, June sort of time frame. And so obviously, you know, kind of introducing this export tax in that time period, you know, would make it even more punitive of, of trying to hold on to supplies. And so the, the big question would be, you know, is, is the farmer going to hold on to supplies to try to avoid some of this taxing, the tax structure or the, the export tariff structure, um, you know, and only to, to try to dump those supplies before new crop, especially if the crop looks relatively large. And so I think this really just kind of saves them um, from that idea in the sense that they're, they're forcing the hand of the farmer, um, you know, where we're going to, you know, basically charge you, um, we're going to make it punitive for you to hold on to, to bushels for the, you know, you you got two months to to sell this, and and if you don't, then sorry, you know you're you're just going to to pay the penalty. And so I think, you know, their real goal in Russia is to try to bring down domestic prices of food, which is interesting because if you look, it's you know the the real significant growth in um, Russian food costs has come mostly in their fresh fruits and vegetables, their fresh foods, excuse me, and, and vegetables and things of that nature. You know, bread has seen an increase. Obviously, it's very easy to see that wheat prices have gone up and that they've been exporting, you know, like like crazy here as of late. And so there's a lot of uncertainty as to how to figure it out. What I find most humorous, though, is that they think limiting the market is is what's going to save it. When the reality is, you know, as we've seen in Argentina here over the last couple of weeks, um, actually opening up free free trade makes the farmer feel more comfortable, um, you know, to make sales. And, and to do the things that are necessary to try to keep grain movement um, go flowing and, you know, keep stuff moving into the pipeline. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Russia ends up doing. I, I, ha- I have, I'm going to admit completely, I have uh, Russian wheat headline fatigue. I feel like, you know, in a normal year, you get like the November export tax or export tariff thing floated around. I, I, we're the first of February and we're still talking about things that uh, Russia is going to do. No, obviously it's important. It's a global story. It has a lot of impacts. Everyone's struggling, you know, post-COVID um, with the the increase in food costs. So it's it's a valid concern. Um, however, there's there's going to be a lot of continuation of of stories floated until they're able to bring down that that crop price. Now, could spring wheat suffer in Russia? I believe so. You know, I'd have to take a look though to see what the the actual breakdown of of spring wheat planted in in Russia is. Um, I apologize for not knowing that off the top of my head. I mean, they're they're they are a significant winter wheat grower, and they do grow a lot of spring wheat. But I I'm not sure if it's enough to to dynamically move the market. But I think spring wheat has a story anyway. You know, when you look at soybeans, canola, and corn, you know, spring wheat's going to have to try to to become the 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 leader of the pack, so to speak. And you're seeing that right now with some of these futures. 
you know, versus new crop. But I think that spread's going to have to get a bit wider on, on the winter wheat side of things, especially soft red. You know, you look at Chicago versus spring right now and and uh, there's not a enough pricing difference. Spring wheat's really going to have to get stout to to want to um, get farmers to plant it. So, so even if Russia isn't a huge deal from a spring wheat standpoint, spring wheat in and of itself has a has a story, I believe. Angie, you just don't know those numbers off the top of your head. What are you doing? I know. I'm such a <laughs> failure. <laughs> oh, well, shoot, Angie, thanks so much for joining today. Before I let you go, if folks want to interact with you on Twitter, you're always sharing your interesting thoughts uh, there. How yeah. can they do so? Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Goddess of Grain, or you can uh, shoot me an email. That's asetzer at citizenselevator.com. Fantastic. Well, Angie, thanks so much for joining today. Always great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Well, we get a big thank you there to at Goddess of Green, Angie Setzer on Twitter. Folks, if you're not following her, you should be. But if you're not following us, what are you doing? You definitely should be. We share news, updates on the podcast, as well as other important factors going on in the ag industry. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.